What is going on, fellow filmmakers and creatives? Welcome to another episode of the Inner Circle Podcast. But before we kick it off, I'm going to introduce myself. I'm Brendan Sweeney, Filmmakers Academy member and host of Finding the Frame. And I just want to talk to you about the annual spring sale that we are currently running over at our platform. Are you ready to elevate your craft to new heights? Dive into a community where inspiration meets guidance, where camaraderie fuels creativity? Well, picture this. We have monthly virtual group coaching sessions, network events that spark collaborations, and fresh educational content lighting up your screen monthly. That's what awaits you as an annual all-access member. And guess what? Your journey starts now with an exclusive offer. Snag $150 off your first year when you use promo code ARMCAR150 at checkout. It's our way of saying welcome to the family. So why wait? Join us today and unlock the ultimate resource hub for cinematographers, film crews, and do-it-all filmmakers everywhere. And did I let you know that we just dropped our recent masterclass, Filmotechnic Camera Car Masterclass, where Shane Hurlbut ASC and his camera crew of working professionals go inside the arm car, break down what it's like to be a cinematographer, getting that confidence to be able to utilize this specialty tool to get the shot. We hope to see you in the family. We want to see you on the platform. Let's join the community, Arm Car 150. Check the show notes for the link and enjoy the episode. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to the June Podcast. Shane and I are both very excited to be with you in this hot summertime. It's very hot in Los Angeles right now. And uh, we are excited this month to have the podcast be about lighting challenges, get ready for some of those, deconstructing one of Shane's scenes on Terminator Salvation. And we also wanted to share with you uh, power distribution. So as you can see, I'm not going to be talking a lot this month, but that's okay because I'm going to be right here adding my color commentary. Coming up in the inner circle, I know you like to have a little bit of a preview of what's coming. We have a commercial on-set cinematography series that we're very, very excited about. So with that said, I'm going to let Shane take it away. All right. Yes. Happy summer, everyone. And uh, I wanted to uh, get right into it. Shane, I start shooting a feature-length thriller soon. The majority of the movie takes place in a basement at night. The director opted for a real basement instead of a set and wants to be able to shoot 360 degrees. Flying in kinos for edge lights or fill when necessary, I believe there are also two small windows to utilize. I'm really excited about the challenges this creates, but I'm kind of stuck in terms of creating enough of an ambience in the room to record a clean image. I'll be utilizing as many practicals as I can. What's the best way to get a toppy, soft, ambient light in a room with low seven-foot ceilings? Thank you so much for everything you do for the inner circle. You all rock. Matt, 
Well, thank you very much for that, Matt. And yes, I, I've had these uh, challenges before. Um, just recently, I did a movie called The Babysitter, which is going to be coming out on uh, Netflix very soon. They're talking about probably a fall release because it's a kind of a horror slasher comedy. So that's going to be out, uh, directed by Mick G, who we had done We Are Marshall together. 20 music videos together as well as Terminator Salvation. So I think it's going to be a really fun uh, movie. And we had some basements as well. And what I used is now let's kind of think about this basement for uh, a minute. If you have the floor joists that are going across, then you're able to tuck uh, lights up in those and the floor joists, depending on whether they're eight inches or 10 inches or 12 inches, uh, in depth, uh, create like their own, um, header as we would call it in the movie business. Uh, you're constantly putting lights, backlights up and, and accent lights up. And then I have my production designer build headers within the set that can go in there. And these headers kind of, uh, when we get wider back in the room, the headers act as a physical flag. So you do not visually see those lights. So I would say the best one for you to kind of use are these light gear light mats. I have just fallen in love with these things. They're so lightweight. They can, uh, they come in all different shapes and sizes and they're by color and they're totally dimmable. And you can literally tape them up to the ceiling or push pin them or whatever, you know, you guys want to do, uh, in that location. But that is a wonderful soft ambient source that, uh, you can, that is literally, um, I'd say a half inch thick and you can put it right up in there and create the ambience. The windows you definitely want to use. Obviously, if you're doing night work in there, then you're going to want to push some kind of, uh, I like gray moonlight. Uh, so I use just tungsten light sources, um, with like a little quarter blue on them and set my camera to 2900 Calvin and it grays the moonlight up very nice. I would, the practical nature will work very well, uh, obviously, depending on what kind of thriller it is, you know, you're going to do, depending on how much practical light you have, it's playing with a lot of silhouettes and shadows and, and from the basement, maybe down the stairs, you can send a light. So the person, whoever's come down, comes down the stairs is silhouetted. And then they move into a bare bulb that is, you know, screwed to the wall. And then they move out of that and then they're silhouetted again. So, you know, there's a nice bit of, uh, stuff that you can play with practical lights, um, and, uh, and, and the ability to shoot 360 degrees top light is your friend as well as, um, any kind of physical headers that you can have your art department create, and they don't necessarily have to be 
hunks of wood. They can be balsam wood and stuff that you can uh, fly around and attach to be able to hide the lights if we see them. And it's a basement, so it can be a potpourri of stuff hanging up, and 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 you can kind of art direct some of those props and stuff that are hanging off the ceiling to be able to block any types of lights that you might see that you've hung. But yeah, I think this is a, a really good start. I think uh, really check out the light gear light mat and uh, you will uh, immediately see what a powerful tool this will be. I have a question. Matt didn't tell us his budget for this particular thriller. So is there anything, if he's on the medium range budget to lower range, uh, I don't know how expensive all these various lights that you've recommended, but is there anything on the DIY front that could excite Matt? Even if he has a bigger budget, he may want to throw in a couple of fun little DIY things as well. Yeah, I mean, DIY, that light mats are fairly inexpensive, so uh, they're very, very cheap to rent. But in regards to being able to hide something up in there, I mean, the Westcott Flex Fill is another one you can get up in there, which are probably a little more reasonable to buy than a light mat. I use a lot of clamp lights, so and those things are always kicking around in a basement. Um, so you know, if there's a water heater area or a furnace or, you know, they always have a clamp light clamped to that area. So, you know, when you turn on the basement and maybe the hot water heater went out, you're able to see what the heck's going on there. So um, I would say, you know, having those type of uh, clamp lights available, uh, you string of bulbs um, is another thing you can do where you can get um, low wattage bulbs and just staple them to uh, the underside of the the subfloor and you can just create a whole wonderful sea of stars up there of, of all these little tungsten lights and then you can slide diffusion in front of it and that's another kind of DIY but you're definitely locked to the very warm warm vibe so where the light mats will have, you can change it any color from 2,800 degrees to, to I think, 6,000 Kelvin. So these are the things that you want to think of and also easily dimmable and dimmable that does not change the color temperature. So um, there's a lot of things that go into when you're thinking about as a cinematographer and how much DIY stuff you do because you want flexibility. You want uh, speed, okay? And sometimes the DIY stuff is not speedy. Uh, it takes a lot of time to rig it because it's not necessarily uh, the, the best possibility for rigging. It's not necessarily the right color temperature. So you might have to do some gelling to get the color right. So, and it's the ability to, you know, oh my God, I just need a little more fill in there. And you're able to, on the light mat, just turn that dimmer up and all of a sudden you have a little more light or God, it would be great if it was just colder, uh, in this section and you're all of a sudden you can dial it up and it's cold. So these are the things you always want to think about as a cinematographer when you're going into, it's where you spend your money. 
and thinking about what light is going to give you the most flexibility and giving you that ability to go to plan B or change things up once you see what the actor might be doing or going into a different place. So these things you want to, that's where you want to spend your money and your lighting budget. And with that, you can set yourself up for success because you've picked a light that has a lot of flexibility and gives uh, the director and you more speed and more variables so you can really um, change it up and not be restricted. Okay. Well, Matt, I hope that answers your question. Hope you're happy with that one. On to Edward. And before we get into Edward's question... I just wanted to say that if Shane and I are sounding a little bit tired today, we've been up since 4 a.m. taking one of our kids to the airport for a summer activity. So it's not that we're depressed. Our son Miles always says, Mom, are you sad? I said, no, I'm just tired. So we're, we got up at 4 and um, we're thrilled to be here with you. If we just sound a little bit more subdued than our normal way, I just wanted you all to know that we're thrilled and excited. We're just a little tired. Okay, on to question number two from Edward. Hi, Shane. Thank you for the great new IC content. Well, thank you, Edward. We're really glad you like it. The news that new great posts are on the way is so nice. As for my podcast question, I would like to discuss all the details concerning frame rates, shutter speed, and user requirement around the world. There seems to be a lot of confusion Differences between USA and Europe, electricity frequencies, flicker, European and American TV frame rate requirements, degrees versus decimals, interface output versus progressive shooting, real 24 versus 23, 976 shooting, etc. The old rule, double your shutter speed in reference to your frame rate is not something that always works I think. Thank you. Kind regards, Edward. Well, I'm confused just by your question, Edward. So hopefully Shane can do a little clarity. All right. All right. Well, the first thing you want to do is you're going to want to go to your iTunes store and your app and get the Flickr free calculator. This thing is your get out of jail free card. This thing has saved my ass so many times. I cannot count them on all my fingers and toes. It is your recipe for success. You, depending on where you are, if you're at 60 hertz, which is the United States, uh, you know, basically all of North America and South America and like a little wedge um, in near the Middle East, this is the 60 hertz. And then you have 50 hertz, which is the rest of the world. And 50 hertz, this flicker-free calculator is able to tell you what frame rates you need to shoot at, depending on what shutter, you know, and then you can adjust the shutter to be able to shoot those frame rates. When we did adventures, I had to shoot at a 172.8 degree shutter uh, to be able to shoot 24 frames per second. And this was the, the way for us to, uh, to be able to shoot uh, 24 frames and uh, deal with the 50 hertz. When I wanted to shoot 48 frames, I had to go to 160 degree shutter. This 
like I said, this free flicker free calculator will tell you all uh, that you need to know in any country that you're in. Uh, basically, just all you have to know is if it's 50 hertz or 60 hertz. And once you know that, the calculator takes over and delivers everything that you need to know in regards to setting your shutter speed. Now, the protocol with shooting, if you don't, like, let's talk about shooting nights and street lights. Most street lights, if you're in Europe, then they're going to be at 50 hertz. If you're in the United States, North America, they're going to be at 60 hertz. So there's frame rates that you can shoot that high speed wise that can work with those frame rates. Like in North America, I know I can shoot 24 frames. I can shoot 30 frames. I can shoot 40 frames. I can shoot 60 frames and I can shoot 120 frames and keep it at 180 degree shutter. So these are the windows uh, that I know I can shoot. In the in Europe, you use your flicker-free calculator and it will tell you exactly what frame rates you can shoot. And then it even has a calculator. So if you say, I wanna shoot 28 frames, well, at 28 frames, you can put 28 frames in and the flicker-free calculator comes back and tells you exactly what shutter speed you're going to need to shoot at so you don't get the lights flickering. So it, I was using this thing so much in Europe. And that 220 thing is also another thing you have to worry about. This is a great story. So you know my Batten lights. If you don't know about them, you just troll Facebook and everywhere uh, that I talk about how I use these Batten lights. And the Batten lights are 110 volts. And the 110 volts uh, and an incandescent light. So when I went to Prague, I needed my Batten lights. And when I went there, the gaffer went through all these different scenarios. He talked about buying, uh, you know, 100, you know, 220 to 110 transformers. And the things were just absolutely huge. And it just was, if we were going to be putting 10, 20 of these things up on a set, there was no way that we were going to be able to have that. And I started thinking about, you know, my a little electronics training I had, I think, in eighth grade with Mr. Silvers. And I'm like, what if we wire two bulbs in series? So by doing that, I was able to distribute the power, the 220 over two bulbs. So one bulb got 110 volts and the other bulb got 110 volts. And then I did that. So I had to rewire all of my Batten lights. Uh, I didn't personally do it. The amazing electricians in Prague did. But they made a whole set of Batten lights that could work at 220 volts. Uh, and uh, it was one of those kind of things of going back to my high school education, which was perfect to be able to solve the problem. Now, let me just dive into some other things that you had asked. Let's see. You had... So, we talked about the flicker-free stuff in European. Uh, frame rates we talked about. Interlace output. Now, shooting televisions, my God. I, I This thing used to be so, such a big problem. And 
We it required people coming out and creating uh, imagery that was 24 frame playback. And it just because it became like this massive industry uh, within the movie business when we were shooting film. Oh, my God, we got to hire this 24 frame playback people and we got to put that up on the screen and all this stuff. Well, the digital cameras have kind of helped you with all these different clear scan modes and everything to be able to sync up with the television uh, a little better. But I have to say, I don't think I've ever put anything on a television in about seven movies. Everything is green screen because nobody wants to take the time to shoot anything prior to actually, you know, doing the production and they don't want to commit to what is actually on the screens. They want to shoot it on the schedule that they want to shoot and not work the whole schedule around us having the ability to shoot what goes on the screens first. Uh, this has just become a major time saver and also a schedule, um, you know, epiphany because you don't have to deal with trying to grab these bits and pieces. Now, obviously, if your budget is very low and you cannot afford the green screen, then you have to go old school, baby. You're going to have to plan uh, exactly when you're going to be shooting this and you're going to have to shoot the stuff on the television and then put it on there and deal with all the frame rates and, and shutter speeds that you need to sync to plasma televisions or LEDs or OLEDs. Uh, there's a whole recipe of that. And what I advise is if you're going to be shooting with televisions, just grab the TV and just start, uh, you know, I we had a couple moments on Adventures where we needed to shoot with the real televisions. Um, and I just gave my B camera guy when I knew we were going to be a camera most of the day. I go, just take that camera that the art department gave you. I mean, the television that the art department gave you and go out there and make sure you can find a shutter speed that works with that to sync it with that, uh, with our camera. And sure enough, he comes back. Yes, it's 122 degree or it was 172.4 or it was 104, you know, it was all these whacked frame rates because every television is different. So that's what I would advise. Just a good amount of uh, little testing here and there will uh, save your ass uh, when you get on the shoot day. And so the old rule of doubling your shutter speed to reference, I don't even think about going down that road anymore. I mean, I used to, to think that way, but now it's all this flicker free calculator that does it for me. Uh, we have so many things on our mind. And now as cinematographers, we're asked to do everything twice to three times as fast. We don't have the size of the crew that we need. We don't have the time that we need. So uh, you really need to use technology to kind of speed up that process. So I hope that helps. All right. Wow. That uh, that was a lot of information. I'm thanking God I'm not a cinematographer right now because I really respect you all so much. And there's so much on top of your shoulders. Um, okay. The next question comes from Alex. And Alex says, hi, Shane. I'm currently making a short film, and it has both daytime and nighttime interior scenes. 
can you suggest any tips for lighting nighttime scenes to make them natural yet interesting? Thanks for all the great tips and lessons so far. It has helped me a lot. Well, that's awesome, Alex. And can I tell you that what I really like about your question is I think you're looking for subtle and natural looking because I think so many... It's very tempting um, for people to really call out the cinematography sometimes. And, and I really like it when people are making it so natural and so subtle and yet something really great and interesting to look at. But thank you for, for really paying attention to that, because I think especially when you're first starting out um, or individuals who are first starting out, they can really overcall the attention to the cinematography until they get used to the subtlety and nuance. So take it away, Shane. I mean, I have to say, I always go to Roger Deakins on this. And uh, this is a guy that's been nominated for 14 Academy Awards and has not won one of them. And he says, if you notice the cinematography, I have failed at my job. And that's something that I take truly to heart because I just really try to be as natural and uh, supporting the story in my cinematography. And I think by supporting the story, you never can go wrong. So the daytime and nighttime interior scenes. So we have, there's a, a daytime interior bundle that we did a little while back. It was probably in 2015. So if you're a new member, I would grab that. And uh, that is going to help you a ton kind of understanding. And if you're working on a limited budget, this uses a lot of DIY. So you literally can go to Granger or Home Depot and grab these sports fixtures and start blasting them into bounce cards that you got from Lowe's insulation board and and you can rig these things up and and fire them through windows and create shafts and a little smoke and bob's your uncle so this is a, a great series of of wonderful light manipulation within day interiors understanding that even though you're shooting in day interiors, you still have to understand where the sun is outside. This is a very crucial point. So when you're location scouting and tech scouting uh, and working with the assistant director, you want to have him or her schedule it at the right time. And this series with lighting daytime interiors really shows you why. It just goes through the whole idea of, okay, if I'm shooting in the afternoon and the sun is going to front light and flat light all the stuff out the window, then I'm not going to be able to balance it. And I'm going to require to have uh, neutral density on the windows. And, but then that's going to affect my ambience inside the room. But again, if you are able to shoot it at the right place at the right time, you don't have to do all these things. So, so it's working with your assistant director is one of the most important things when you're dealing with uh, daytime interiors. Now you would think, well, why am I worrying about where the sun is when I'm inside? 
Well, it's because a lot of times that sun can kick your ass inside. All of a sudden, the sun has has come around and it's coming through windows uh, and you can't control it because you don't have the budget to be able to control it. Uh, So, I mean, when we're doing movies and we cannot control, like I tell them, this is when we need to be there. And the assistant director says, there's no way in hell we're going to be there at that time. You're just going to have to deal with that light. Well, then that means I'm going to have to get a huge pettibone, which is a massive uh, articulating forklift and put a fly swatter on it and be able to arm it up in the air and uh, block the sun that's going to come rifling through all these windows and ruin the um, continuity of lighting within the scene. I get asked a lot of times, Shane, you know, why don't you just shoot with available light? And I'm like, okay, so let's kind of break that down a little bit. So if I have a five-page scene and it's going to take place in, let's say, we're going to shoot it in four or five hours. Well, there's going to be some definitely light changes going on in four or five hours. When I was in on Into the Badlands and Need for Speed, that means in four or five hours, I'm going to have blazing sun, which is going to turn into pounding rain, which is going to turn into thunderstorms that shut the generator down, that we can't turn it on because the lightning is going to be attracted to the generator. Uh, all these things are going to happen, and uh, which is going to affect my available light that I thought I was going to shoot the scene with. So using lights to emulate and keep uh, the consistency and continuity of the light is uh, very important. So I would say get that daytime interior bundle uh, if you haven't gotten it uh, already. Uh, That's going to give you a lot of insight. Uh, For nighttime interiors, I love using practicals. So if your scene is a scene that can have practical light, then I usually turn the practicals on. Uh, I try to uh, get a camera that uh, can... um, that really embraces the practical light and, uh, and actually can see it. Um, and, you know, actually gets uh, an exposure from it. And then I just try to place the practicals in the way uh, for the blocking. So uh, they walk over, they're getting lit by a practical, uh, they walk away, they're kind of backlit by it, or, you know, it's just like playing with, with placement and also working with the production designer so you can have a good assortment of practicals to choose from. Um, so you're just not you're dealing with one gooseneck bulb uh, or some barrel shade that uh, is all the practicals that you have. You want a, a good amount of smaller ones and, and larger ones to be able to help you light uh, your your nighttime interiors. And then I just try to assist the practical if the practical is not giving off the exact light that I want, but it's in the, the scene, then I'll bring matching warm practicals, kind of like your barrel shades, uh, you know, your, your table lamps and stuff. Westcott makes these amazing spider lights, and I put the exact bulb that uh, is in the practical inside the Westcott, and it gives you this uh, beautiful, uh, soft, 
very containable source that matches the practical perp- perfectly. And uh, you can move it around and you can egg crate it and you can honeycomb it and you can dim it and you can do all the things that you want to kind of mimic and, and uh, match those practical lights. With daytime interiors, depending on your windows and what you're looking out of, you're going to need to balance those as well. And this is where I talked about time of day shooting. If you're going to be backlit and the the background is not going to be uh, is going to be more in shade, then that's going to be very easy to balance, uh, much easier than it being front lit and overexposed out there. And and uh, depending on your latitude of your camera, being able to hold that detail and not just having it clip out. So these are things that you really need to think through when you're when you're checking all this out. I actually have a question with. The crazy weather patterns that we seem to be experiencing, is there anything that you can do lighting-wise to kind of, you know, help the speed? So if all of a sudden you get hurt by, you know, some massive storm that's coming in that was unexpected or a hurricane or a tornado that came out of nowhere, how do you prevent that from just completely blowing up your day time-wise? I mean, I think it'd be interesting for people to hear is there a way to be proactive even in the midst of a massive storm? Well, I think I think the the biggest way to set yourself up for success is to have a lighting arsenal that when the shit hits the fan, you're going to be able to match and emulate the light that might not be there anymore. So let me give you an example. Uh, Into the Badlands, I think it was week two, we're out two hours outside of Louisiana in these sugarcane fields. And it's when Sonny uh, comes up and he finds this transport flipped over and there's like 15 people decapitated and stabbed and everything just laying uh, alongside the road. Well, we went out there and we were able to get our first big establishing shots and get in there close and and uh, do all all the first scene very uh, very nicely and right at the right time and everything was working perfectly, and then all of a sudden Armageddon happened. A massive thunderstorm came through that kind of just laid in our area for over four hours. We had to shut down the generator. We had to evacuate. It was that bad. Um, one of my Libra head technicians was standing in his truck. Um, and when the lightning strike hit, uh, it electrified, uh, the ground and it actually gave him a shock with inside the truck. That's how close this hit was. So these are the things that just happened. And, uh, so now we had to shoot a whole scene where they're digging a hole and burying all these bodies. And it was there that we were losing the light. It was starting to get dark and the performances, this was like, you know, week 
two, uh, and, um, you know, MK's character, you know, um, the actor really hadn't found his character and we were doing, my God, 30, 40, 50 takes. And I'm just watching the light levels go away. So I was able to, uh, make it look like, uh, it was always sunny. And I was able to do that with large bounces and 18 Ks and all this stuff to be able to keep the, uh, the sun ambience alive and be able to make that scene work. So these are the kind of things that you always have to think about when you're going bare bones in scenarios. Um, you know, you, you got to have some type of arsenal when the weather comes in and really takes you out. Now, if you're doing a small independent project that weather comes in, you're just going to have to shoot it the way you're going to shoot it. Uh, if you have to deal with the rain and, and, uh, you got to deal with the mismatching and all that stuff because you don't have the budget for 18 Ks, there's really no way around it other than coming back. And I was reading an American cinematographer, uh, article, um, yesterday and John Schwartzman had a really wonderful quote in there. He goes, what's the, what's your most essential thing that you bring to, you know, on set? And he goes, my sense of humor. And, uh, I love that quote. Um, and it's absolutely the truth because what he was saying is you're going to have to just continue to shoot because the days of coming back and doing it again are gone absolutely gone. I have not done something like that since Mr. 3000, which was in 2003. I going back. I just never, you just don't do it ever. So, um, all right. That's, that's an answer to your question, Lydia. Thank you very much. <laughs> Okay, moving on to the next great question, which is an anonymous one, so we can't give anybody credit, but it's a really interesting question. Hi, Shane. We're shooting a low-budget horror movie this summer. For budget reasons, we have to shoot a lot of wide night exterior shots day for night. I was wondering if you could give us some of your great advice. Number one, general tips on shooting day for night. Number two, is it a good idea to mingle day-for-night shots with actual night shooting shots? And number three, do you prefer shooting on blue day-for-night filters or the monochrome day-for-night filters? Thanks. You rock. <laughs> All right. Day-for-night is one of those very difficult eggs to crack. And um, the general tips on shooting day-for-night... Um, you always have to go inside your head as if you were shooting a night exterior. So how do you shoot night exteriors? Well, let me tell you how I shoot them, and then you can decide on that's how you like to do it. I backlight. So my moonlight is my backlight. So no matter what direction I'm looking, you're always backlit. And uh, that is my rule. Now, sometimes it becomes sidelit in situations because of how the camera's moving and, and where you can position your light. 
uh, but I never try to do anything frontlit. So think about that when you're shooting day for night. If you're shooting day for night, you're definitely not going to want to be toplit or frontlit. You're going to want to be backlit. So you want to try and shoot a lot of your day for night when it's backlit. So you're going to want to be getting up very early uh, to be able to take advantage of those situations. And you're going to want to be able to um, rotate your directions to how, where the sun is going. Uh, obviously, day for night shooting is, is beautiful in the winter months because you have a very low sun and you can basically just rotate your whole action uh, and your scene to the sun and uh, keep it all back. But you're doing it in the summer which is not going to be very good. And, but, you know, you're going to have, being in the summer, you're going to have tons of time to be able to while the sun is up. So uh, I would say uh, early mornings and late afternoons, when it gets a little toppy, like in the summertime, 10 to 11 o'clock, you can probably get away with. You don't want to be playing at uh, high noon to four o'clock. Uh, you want to be shooting something else. Um, so that's my general tip for shooting day for night. Think of how you would shoot night for night, and then you try to manipulate your sunlight where you would have it if you were shooting night for night. Is it a good idea to mingle day for night shots with actual shooting shots of actual night shooting shots? <laughs> no. That is not something you want to do. Uh, it will call attention to it because it's an ambience that with night exteriors, you just don't have in the shadows, which obviously in day for night, you have the sun and the sky filling in all those shadows. So it's very difficult to match that. Um, because you just don't have the ability to create that ambience everywhere. Uh, you can create the beautiful moonlight ambience that I do with bounces uh, for key lights and fill light, but that's not going to blanket uh, a massive area like it would in the day for night scenario. So you don't want to try to mix those. And the third question, do you prefer uh, the blue night a blue day for night or the monochrome? I, uh, it all depends. I mean, I'm a silver, uh, type of gray moonlight guy. So I go for the monochrome day for night filters. Uh, if you like your moonlight to be on more of the blue side, like I went really cyan blue in Badlands, uh, then you would go for your blue day for night filters. So, uh, it really is all depends on what moon you're putting up on your night exteriors and night interiors. And then obviously you'd want to match that same type of moonlight color for your day for night. Okay. One quick question before we get on to Jacques' question, because I hear this so often. And I think when you've been a cinematographer for a long time, you have a different perspective on this. I think a lot of people feel that you can fix so much in post and, oh, we'll just handle it in post. We'll just deal with it in post. Is there any sort of manipulating, handling, day for night, matching anything in post? No, right? Or is there? That's my question. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of post manipulation on on Terminator Salvation. We had a day for night sequence. I underexposed the uh, the image, so it uh, and I yeah I underexposed that, so it it didn't have like the 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 sun backlight. This is another great tip. Obviously, when you're shooting day exteriors and that backlight comes in and you're exposing for the faces, that is beautiful, you know, because you love that hot backlight. But for night exteriors, I actually play my backlights in night exteriors about a stop down. So if I'm shooting at a T2, my backlight is usually a 1.4. So one stop down from what I set at the lens. And then my fill level uh, that's on their faces is usually four stops, three to four stops down from that two. So that would be a 0.7 or a 0.5. So with those ratios that I'm talking about, you have to think about that as well on your day for night. So if you're going to be uh, backlighting somebody uh, with the sun, then you're going to want to underexpose that backlight. So say the backlight is coming in on a day exterior. My God, it's going to be a 800 ISO. Uh, obviously, he's throwing some neutral density in there. But let's say it's at a 5.6 with your neutral density and everything, then you'd want to shoot at an eight. Well, you really don't want to shoot night exteriors at an eight, do you? Uh, it's not going to look right. So you're going to want a neutral density down. So you're in the same realm of a night exterior, which is most of the time you're going to be at a one, four or two. So you want to take, like I said in the beginning, the thought process of shooting night exteriors. You're, you're shooting with minimal light. You're going to probably be wide open, a 1.4 or 2 on the lens. So you need to emulate that same scenario uh, with your uh, day for night photography. So you're going to underexpose the, the backlight of the sun, a stop. So that means uh, you, if it's an 8, with your camera with some neutral density, you're going to have to add four more stops in neutral density. So you can take it down a f from a, f you can take it from an eight to a five, six, to a four, to a two, eight, to a two. And then maybe you shoot it a two, eight. So you're underexposing that. And then I use the ambience of the, um, of the sky to be my moon ambience on their faces. So underexposing is very, very important uh, to pulling off day for night, as well as thinking about how you would shoot a night exterior and using the same protocol and position of the sun, just like you would be positioning your lights. I hope that helps. All right. I think we really covered that day for night. Oh, moving, thank you. <laughs> moving on to Jacques from Montreal. Jacques, I love your name. Hi, and Shane. We love Montreal. Yes, we do. When it's our favorite city in North America for sure. Yeah, you have a beautiful city, Jacques. Hi, Shane. I was listening to one of your old podcasts about lighting with 18Ks and other heavy lights. And you had a question 
about electric generators on set? Well, here's my question. Could you do a video showing how to set up these big lights with their respective ballasts and what type of generators we need for each type of lights from 1Ks to 18 to 20Ks and which stands are generally used to put them on? It would be much appreciated since it would make me feel more knowledgeable about using these lights and prepping them for projects now or in the future. Thank you a lot. And I wish you and Lydia a very good day. Well, you know what, Jacques, we wish you the same. And here's Shane. All right, Jacques. So uh, this month we launched a portable generator where we go into using up to a 4K on portable generators and uh, what uh, the whole etiquette and uh, how to distribute your power and all those type of things. So we're definitely getting into this. We did uh, a lighting 18K ratio uh, about a month ago where we showed you why I use 18Ks and why they're so important in matching daylight. We will definitely do something like this uh, so we can kind of show you the the distribution uh, for um, you know powering up these large lights. Uh, we have uh, some videos coming in the pipeline that deal with a distribution um, and generated power and how you're balancing that. I went into on this portable generator wonderful scenario because my gaffer Eric Foren talked about how you don't ever want to use all of what the generator is rated for. So if it's a 6,500, that's 6,500 watts. You actually want to be around 5,500 watts is your capacity. If you're on a 3,000 watt, you only want to really go to 2,200, 2,400 watts. So there's always an 80% rule. Well, when we did Terminator Salvation in uh, New Mexico, Scott Graves was my um, rigging gaffer. And I just saw all these generators everywhere. And I'm like, looking, I'm like, God, we only got an 18K here and an 18K there. And then there's a 20K down there and a couple maxi brutes. I mean, what is with all these generators? I mean, uh, we could easily have done it with just one. Well, when you're in Albuquerque, you're a mile high. So you're at 5,600 feet above sea level. And when you get up that high, generators don't work as well because the oxygen is thin. And when it's thin, that takes uh, a hit. So uh, your generator, if it was rated for 1,500, is actually what he was using the rule is that is a 75 or 750 amp generator instead of a 1500 amp generator. So if you got a 4,000 amp generator, it was actually a 2000 amp generator. And that was the rule across the board of uh, dealing with that uh, in, in Albuquerque. But we are starting more videos to go into the technical side of uh, distributing power. So they are on the way. Uh, but one that goes into the stands that you use and all that stuff so it can help you prepare. That's a great one. And uh, we will make sure that we do a video that's based on just these big lights and how to manhandle them and manhandle them. 
manage them and what stands are great and how to power distribute them. Okay. Now, Jacques has one more question here. And uh, let's see, we owe you an apology, Jacques, because as I'm reading this, it is you needed this information in early May. And <laughs> we're now June. So I apologize. We do take the questions in the order that we receive them. And uh, we have been flooded with a lot of questions. So I'm sorry that this is coming a little bit later than we would have liked. One thing when you're submitting your questions to us, it would be super helpful if they're of a time sensitive nature um, that you let us know that. Otherwise, they kind of get put in a queue. So if you could highlight it, say, you know, need an answer now, emergency, like put out your bat signal, because we will put that question to the top of the pile, but we can only help you if we know that it has a time sensitive nature on it. So Apologies to you, but please, everybody, um, help us help you by doing that. So here's the question. Hi, Shane and Lydia. I hope you're doing well because I am. Love hearing that. I've been chosen as a DP for a short micro-budget project starting early this May. And as I was doing research on framing and lighting from reference books, I came across pictures from Terminator Salvation. Director wants the film to be moody and really dig that lighting. Well, I thought, why not ask the smoke baron himself? I was wondering how you lit the scene and where John and Marcus are having their first discussion when Marcus is hanged on the air discovering that he is a machine. Thanks a lot. Sincerely, Jacques from Montreal. Go ahead. All right, Jacques. That was a great set. Oh, my God. Martin Lang, our production designer, just knocked it out of the park. So this was a real... Martin Lang, our production designer, did an amazing set. It was a silo that uh, from a spent nuclear missile that uh, obviously created Armageddon um, and uh, was the rise of the machines. So this interior had uh, a, the missile silo that obviously the top opened up. Uh, and so I used the ability of, this was on a set, but I used the ability of sunlight coming down through that uh, missile silo. And we put all this kind of grating up, and then we put vines on it. So it had a beautiful Kukaloris effect uh, coming down through this, um, you know, into where uh, Marcus was being... Um, you know, hung in the center of it. And I used uh, a 24 light Dino to pound through all that and, and, you know, smoked it up in there. So it had a, a texture to it. And that was the main source was that large uh, 24 light Dino that I think I had narrow bulbs onto and I splayed them out a little bit. So you could get like little shafts that would shoot through some of the, uh, through the vines and everything. Now on top of, and that was on a uh, 
articulating condor, so a lift, so we could move it. So if I was looking at Marcus straight on, then it was behind him. And then when we went into the profile, then I spun it around so they were backlit from, you know, to camera on a profile. So these are things that that I was doing there. And then I took um, a huge 40 by sky blue. So it's a 40 by 40 uh, sky blue. And then I pounded uh, 18Ks into it. Uh, and those 18Ks from the floor bounced into this 40 by 40 blue sky. And it created a blue tone in all the shadows. So imagine that being the skylight. So we had the sun rifling down through the missile silo. And then we had our uh our sky ambience with this blue uh you know sky blue is what they call them and they're very muted it's not like really deep deep saturated blue it's more like a baby blue uh but it gives uh like 6500 calvin uh perfect tonality into the shadow areas when you bounce uh 18k's into it and that was perfect for uh, the skylight. And then I just used a series of like those medical operating room practicals and stuff that, that they had gotten for me uh, to be able to aim at Marcus and John Connor. And you can see when John Connor comes into the shot, you can see that very bright uh, 24 light Dino coming through and kind of creating those skull eyes on him, which I really wanted that feel. And then I just took a little circle bounce, a four by four circle bounce that I returned the 12 by or the 24 light Dino into his eyes for when he kind of leans in close to, uh, to Marcus to unclip the, um, chain so he can see that he's a machine. All righty. Last question. Boy, it's, uh, gone quickly this hour. This is from, I don't know if you pronounce your name Zarek or Zarek. And I'm sorry, but it's Z-A-R-I-C-K. Hi, Shane. Thank you so much for your dedication. It's a real pleasure to watch you work. I wanted to ask you about the hidden part of lighting the electrical power needs. I'm using HMIs up to 1200 watt because they are simple to set up as they are running of normal power outlets. I do have a 4K Airy but don't use it often because I need to run it from a generator that is noisy, heavy, and slow to set up. I'm now looking into a solution to run it directly from my Prius, but it's still a hassle and it won't give me enough power to go all the way to 18Ks anyway. I see you using multiple 18Ks on Into the Badlands and around your home. How do you solve the power needs for all these lights without the noise of generators or hundreds of meters of power lines. If we have time, we've got a great Prius story, but uh, go ahead and answer first. Okay. All right. So, Zurich, there's something that I do. You've seen 18Ks around my house and, and larger lights. Obviously, a generator is very expensive. Uh, it's the safest way to go about uh, doing these things. Um, the generators that we use are blimped, so you can put them about probably three, four hundred feet away. And um, 
I've even parked trucks in, in front of them to kind of create a wall for the sound department many times if they're too close. But they seem to work very well. If we're talking Honda generators and stuff like that, obviously they're very noisy. You have to put them very far away. And then by the time the cable gets to you, there's not enough power to actually fire up your lights because there's this thing called line loss. Every 50 feet of cable, you lose um, a, uh, a amount of a volt. Um, so that's why when you're doing large generators and large power, you use very, very thick cable so you can minimize that line loss. So you don't have to take your power on your generator, your voltage, and turn it way up, which I've done in many cases in my career because the line loss and is just so extreme. The generator is so far away that you just have to turn the voltage up. But with the Honda generators, you cannot adjust the volume. Uh, you cannot adjust the voltage. So there's this thing called tying in. And what uh, we have done, and I know that it's done. No, 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 no. I, I'm not going to go into to how to do it, Lydia. But this is something that is is done in Europe. It's it's done. Um, it's kind of uh, now in the states is it's illegal and very dangerous and very dangerous because if you're not a qualified electrician. Um, then it's it's very dangerous to to tie in. So if you're going to be working at a home that has a good amount of power, like our house uh, that we had uh, at that you saw a lot of those videos where we had the 18ks, um, I was able to tie into this power because I'm a registered electrician when I was a gaffer. So I under union and all that yes. Stuff. So I understood how to go about it. Obviously we don't want you trying these type of things. So what I advise is if you are going to uh, need this to save budget and save worrying about running all this cable that we talked about in your question, then uh, you would hire an electrician to be able to come in and do it legally uh, to be able to supply you with uh, the right power to be able to power up these large lights. But the generator is the safest way to do it. And just parking the generator a little further away. And if you can't afford all that cable, uh, you can park it close and then use trucks to kind of block the sound, which I've done uh, many times. Even with uh, the putt-putt generators, I'll put them over uh, behind a, a building. Uh, I'll put them down a hillside. I'll do everything possible to kind of help the sound department out with all this or hire an electrician just be safe that's all we care about. yes absolutely all right well that concludes our june podcast and i want to thank you so much for all these amazing questions remember to keep them coming uh go to the podcast area uh, within the inner circle and keep these amazing questions coming because these podcasts are supplied by all of you and i loved what lydia talked about with the time sensitive thing uh, we're going to make this something that uh, when we're ingesting 
addressing all these if you're able to just say this is time sensitive and then our our team can note that and they'll make sure that they put those at the top of our queue. Last thing before we sign off, I just want to say have a wonderful summer. Take some time for yourself to decompress, to be with your family. We've always taken a family vacation. And ironically, this summer we have to do two family mini vacations because our kids are in different places at different times because they're older now. But it is very important to make the memories, to take a moment out, even if it's just a long weekend, whatever works for you. Um, but please take some time to refresh, recharge this summer. And um, we hope you have a wonderful summer and we'll see you next month. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. If you love what you're listening to here, go to shanesinnercircle.com. It is knowledge that is forged on the set. This is not a classroom environment. This is boots on the ground, immersive learning that you can apply immediately to whatever your skill level is. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. That's exactly what happens in our loving film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.